For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Golden Chain. This is part four, Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through 30. So we've come again to the word of God this morning to consider Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. The subject of our attention, uh, once again, is this vaulted, magnificent theology that comprises chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It's a text that we've been referring to by a common descriptor in church history, the golden chain. Uh, The text, again reveals a representative list. It's not a comprehensive list, but a representative list often called the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation. And that representative list is a list of God's manifold works in grace to the salvation of undeserving sinners. A list of five here, five unbreakable links in a glorious and golden chain. That list, the golden chain, represents for us A path, if you will, a path laid out from the eternal deliberations of God's own infinite mind in eternity past to the accomplishment of all that God has decreed in redeeming us to himself to the praise of his glory in eternity future. A path, if you will, from eternity past to eternity future represented by these five unbreakable links in the golden chain. All of that now for the purpose that the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, might be the firstborn, the prototakos, among an innumerable host of those whom he is not ashamed to call brethren from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. He is to be the head over a great kingdom, wherein he reigns as king over a grateful and worshiping, redeemed humanity, renewed after his own image, and a righteous image, that is, his own holy image. Now, to put this text then in its proper context, we're hearing closing statements, if you will, in a case that Paul has been building since chapter 4. Think about where we are in the book of Romans. We're about to begin chapter 9, which is a new section in the book. We've been building up, building up uh, for a year and a half now, (laughs) I think it is, building up to the conclusion of Paul's case that he's been making all along, which takes place in Romans chapter 8. We're hearing closing statements, if you will, in that case. We are justified or declared righteous in the sight of God through the instrumentality of a believer's faith. Among all the subjects that Paul addresses in this book, probably no other subject has been talked about more so far, discussed more, and therefore um, more important that we understand and embrace these things. No other subject has been talked about more than faith alone, justification through the instrumentality of a believer's faith. And that justification or that right standing with God is through the believer's faith alone apart from any works of the law. To make his case, we'll talk about that case in a moment, but to make his case, Paul then calls Abraham as witness. That's in Romans chapter four. God promised 
Abraham, that Abraham would inherit all things, essentially. We know from Romans chapter four that Abraham understood God's promise was that Abraham would inherit the world. God promised that Abraham would inherit all things. Abraham believed God. Abraham took God at his word, followed the Lord. He believed God and it was accounted to him. It was put to his account as righteousness. And you see from that, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that salvation, which is by faith through, or by grace through faith, is not of yourselves. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God's own grace to you. It is not according to any works which you have done so that no one can boast. In other words, our salvation, brothers and sisters, is all of grace that it might be to the praise of his glory. Now in that, Even Abraham himself doubted. Look back with me at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. In that promise, even Abraham himself had his doubts. Genesis chapter 15. In verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, there was some confusion on Abram's part. God had promised him a child, promised him a seed after him, and through that seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abram Uh, as since been childless. Then Abram said, verse three, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord, and he, God, put it to his account. He accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Two verses later, right, verse 8. Abram believed in the Lord. The Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. Two verses later, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? In other words, we don't do anything to deserve it. We haven't worked to earn it. There's nothing that we can do within our own strength or power. We have none. There's nothing that we can do to get it. Abram asked the question, how do I know that I will inherit it? Well, that is answered in Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four, verse 16 This is the case that Paul has been making all along. Romans chapter four, verse 16. Therefore, it, and what is the it they're referring to? The it is referring to the promise of God to Abraham. The promise of salvation. The promise that Abraham would inherit the world. The promise of God, it, the promise of a glorious salvation in the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Therefore, it is of faith or through the means of faith, through the instrumentality of faith, so that it might be according to grace as opposed to works, 
so that or for the purpose that the promise of God might be sure, might be made certain to all the seed of Abraham. Not only to Jewish Christians who place their faith in Jesus Christ, but also to all those who share the same faith as Abraham, who, through faith in Christ, have become the father of us all. You see the point that Paul is making. It is of faith, so that it might be according to grace, so that the promise is made sure to all the seed. Brothers and sisters, the case that Paul has been making is that our salvation in Jesus Christ is certain. God is faithful to his word. He has decreed he will bring it to pass. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. You understand? You will not be disappointed. Do you want eternal life through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Then believe upon him. Don't imagine for a second that you can earn it. Don't imagine for a second that you can work for it. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him. Put all of your undeserving eggs in that one basket. Why? Because God is faithful to his word. It is sure to all the seed because it is all of grace. You see? God is the one who does it. God is the one who saves. And God is omnipotent and God is faithful to his promises. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He will come through. Your salvation is certain. Take him at his word and you will be saved. Do you see? With his son, you will inherit all things. You can be certain of that. You can be assured of that only, only because it is all of God. Is there anyone else faithful like our God? <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> and if it depended at all on you or I, we would be doomed. And all of that, brothers and sisters, is received through faith. Our salvation, really in the order of salutis, the order of salvation or the golden chain, our salvation really does hinge upon this issue of justification by faith. Taking God at his word, right? Putting your faith and trust in him. Turning from your sin. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our sin, in order for us to inherit with the Lord Jesus Christ, in order for us to, to be blessed with eternal life, our sin must be dealt with. It has to be dealt with, and it's got to be dealt with in, in, in a way that only God can deal with it. So what about our sin then? What about our sin? God has dealt with our sin by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has uh, showed us through his word how he has dealt with, his sin, with our sin now through the writings of Paul in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The sinner is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And the question is, How? How? How's that possible? Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. Paul building his case now for the assurance of the one who has put all his eggs in that one basket. Do you see? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, coming to this conclusion, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How can we know we ask with Abraham sometimes, right, don't we? How can we know that we will inherit? You ever ask that question in those kinds of terms? How can we know that we will inherit? You've been given his spirit as a pledge. You've been given his spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. Yes, and we know in addition to this that God himself is now working all things together for our eternal good. Why? 
Why is that? Because, verse 29, his salvation is all of grace. Those whom he has determined in the eternal counsels of his own will to set his love upon, those he has predestined, foreordained, decreed to be conformed to the image of his own son, and those whom he has predestined, verse 30, these he has also called, and those whom he calls, these he also justified, and those whom he justified, these he has also glorified. Speaking in the future of our glorification as though it had already taken place. That's how sure it is, right? That's how certain it is. And that is because it has all been secured, all been secured by the obedience and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. And then Paul reaches then the conclusion of his case, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has acquitted us, if God has declared us to be righteous, if God has justified us, then who in the world can make a charge against us? A charge that will actually stand before the bar of God's justice. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him then also freely give us all things? Do you see Paul's reasoning? The case that Paul is making? Salvation is certain to all those who have been justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Paul finishes the chapter and concludes his case then with this in verse 38. For I am persuaded then that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Let that inform your worship. Amen? Let that inform your obedience. Let that inform your service. Let that inform your joy. Let that inform your hope. It's what Paul wants to do here. Those whom he has foreknown, he predestined. Those whom he has predestined, he has called to himself in power. Those whom he has called to himself in power, enlightening their understanding, giving them a new heart and a renewed will, but whereby they turn to Jesus Christ in faith, being made willing by his grace, these then he also justifies. It's all a work of God. And so many today want to make it a work of man. Right? Settling in that for some absurdly cheap and unworkable, untenable counterfeit. Why? Because we're trying to uphold some idol of free will or whatever that is. Just conceiving of it wrong from the body. It's as though we had something to do with it. No, brothers and sisters, if you want confidence and you, if you want assurance, when we went through the, the book of 2 Corinthians together, Paul is consistently reminding us, don't shrink back. 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 The Bible full of warnings against apostasy. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Don't forsake him. Don't turn back. Don't throw in the towel. Don't be discouraged. Our salvation is sure. And it's sure because it has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and it has been decreed by God and he is even now carrying it out. Don't shrink back. Don't turn back. Keep moving forward. Keep pressing forward. Keep turning from sin. Keep embracing that in faith to the saving of your soul. Amen? Justification is a subject that Paul has extensively addressed in this book. 
you were here with us in 2021, 2022. Um, I hope those sermons, that maybe you still remember some of that, are they aiding in your understanding. And nevertheless, this is a subject, justification is a subject that we return to in this church often, and it's a subject that we'll do well to consider once again this morning. We need to restore ourselves up by way of reminder, don't we? Repetition. Even the world understands the mother of all learning, the father of all accomplishment, right? Justification. Justification has to do with our legal standing before God. How can a sinful human being be brought into a right relationship to a holy and just God? This is the work of justification. Justification answers those questions. Justification by faith is so important It's so critical that Martin Luther referred to it as the article of faith upon which the church itself stands or falls. J.I. Packer described the doctrine of justification by faith as Atlas, bearing the weight of the world upon his shoulders. Packer said this, the Bible teaches that God elected men in eternity in order that in due time they might be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. He renews their hearts under the word. He draws them to Christ by effectual calling in order that he might justify them upon their believing. Their adoption as God's sons is consequent to their justification. Indeed, it is no more than the positive aspect of God's justifying grace. The church is to be thought of as the congregation of the faithful, the fellowship of justified sinners. A right view of these things is not possible without a right understanding of justification. So that when justification falls, all true knowledge of the grace of God in human life falls with it. And then, as Luther said, the church itself falls. In other words, when Atlas falls, everything that rests upon Atlas' shoulders falls with him. (laughs) The word justification is a legal term. It's a term drawn from the courtroom, so to speak. Just or justified is a word used in the Bible to refer to anyone who is accepted in the sight of God as righteous. Just or justified is a term used in the Bible to refer to anyone who is accepted in the sight of God as righteous. Justification then, as a legal term, refers to a declaration about that person. It refers to a single act or a single declaration of God. And in justification, a sinner is declared to be just. A sinner is declared to be righteous, legally acceptable to God. How in the world does that take place? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, It's a dilemma, right? How can a sinful man be right with a holy and just God? He is declared to be justified, declared to be righteous, and then he's treated accordingly. Having been declared just, he's treated as a just person or as a righteous person. The question is how? Considering the uncompromising, inviolable justice of God, how can a holy God declare a sinful man to be righteous? How can that verdict be just. If you went to churches like I did, you just ask for forgiveness. Listen, that doesn't deal with sin. That doesn't deal with sin justly to just a a blank check, if you will, send it up however you like, and you can be forgiven. How can the verdict, a legal verdict of just, be lawful when that person has committed sin? 
Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And we find that question, that same dilemma repeated throughout the Old Testament, for example. Job chapter 9, verse 2. How can a man be righteous or just before God? Bildad, one of his ungrateful counselors in Job chapter 25, verse 4. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. In other words, in the testimony of the Bible... Before the bar of God's justice, there is no one who can adequately plead any case for their own righteousness. No one. What is the righteousness then by which God justifies the ungodly? Where does it come from? How does God remain just while at the same time justifying ungodly sinners? How is our sin righteously cleared in the courtroom of heaven. And God does so on the basis of his own son's obedience and the basis of his own son's sacrifice as our substitute, as substitute for his people. Christ's own righteousness is bestowed as a free gift by God. Listen to our confession of faith. Again, systemizing what the Bible teaches on this subject. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. Christ did it, fully discharging the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, made a real, proper, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. In other words, The penalty that was due our sin was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross as our substitute. God the Father accepts this work of Christ on behalf of those he came to save. And on the basis of that work, on their behalf, the penalty and the guilt of their sin is removed. The penalty and guilt of their sin is cleared. His perfect obedience is then put to their account. It's imputed or credited to them. And God declares those who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith to be righteous in his sight. It's entirely and completely by the work of another, by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession, chapter 11, article one. Listen, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies them not by infusing righteousness into them so that they could be justified on account of their own righteousness, right? That's, that's the Roman error, Roman Catholicism. God does not infuse a practical righteousness into them. He gives them, as a free gift of his own grace, he gives them the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can legally declare them to be righteous. It says he does not infuse righteousness into them, but rather pardons their sins by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. This accounting them as righteous is not of anything, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, not by believing for us, right? 
the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their own righteousness, but by crediting or putting to to their account Christ's active obedience under the whole law and his passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. And he does that by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Even the faith that we have is not a work because it is the gift of God. Now notice from that, two elements that are necessary to our justification. Two elements. First is pardon. The forgiveness of our sins through the penalty-paying sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And second, imputation. Imputation. The accounting or the crediting of our sins to Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness credited to us as our own. Both pardon and imputation provided by the grace of God. And that grace dispensed to us, if you will, through the instrumentality of our faith. Remember, Paul, Romans chapter four, verse 16. It is of faith by our believing so that it may be according to grace and not according to works, so that it might be sure and certain to all the seed, so that God, in his faithfulness, in his covenant faithfulness, might accomplish all that he has purposed and decreed. Paul established uh, in Romans chapter three, if you remember with me, there are none righteous. No one, there is no one who meets the righteous requirements of God's law. The law is written upon the heart of man, The law is revealed by the very words of God in Scripture, and Paul draws from the Scriptures the verdict of God upon the entire human race. Guilty, right? Guilty. All have turned aside. All have become unprofitable. There is no one who is or does good, not even one. Despite what the world tries to say, there is no one No one who is righteous. There is no one who does good. No one who seeks after God. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one, in other words, there is no one who may by virtue of his own response to God's law as revealed in his heart or as revealed in his conscience or as revealed in the scriptures, there is no one who may by virtue of his own performance under God's law consider his own obedience as a basis on which to claim righteousness or to claim right standing for himself before God. No one. Paul was constantly confronted by people who believed exactly the opposite. Namely the Jews and in particular the Pharisees. They wanted to look at their family heritage as a basis for their right standing before God or that they were righteous because they were born as sons of Abraham, for example. They pointed to their religion. They pointed to their rites and their rituals. They pointed to their knowledge of the Bible. They had been taught the very oracles of God. Because they had the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins or because they had the mark of circumcision in their flesh, because they, of these types of things, they believed themselves to be just, to be acceptable or to be righteous in God's sight. And... Not only did they believe that they were just in God's sight because of these things, they believed that God would be unjust in condemning them when these things were true of them, that somehow God would be unjust. So Paul then says clearly there at the end of chapter three, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. In other words, it is all of grace, all of grace. 
Now this, brothers and sisters, is the, the black backdrop that lies behind the shimmering gem, gem of God's free justification through faith. Through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. By those, are those whom he has foreloved, those whom he has determined to set his love upon, those whom he has predestined, these also he calls to himself effectually, and these he justifies, and he justifies them freely by his grace. And think of those two elements with me. First, he justifies them by forgiving them of their sin. Christ having paid the penalty due their sin upon the cross. He received on the cross in his own person, the wrath that our sins deserved. He received in his person the righteous retribution that the law of God demanded, namely death, such that the law of God fully was fully satisfied in him. Fully satisfied in that our sins have been completely and fully punished. The wrath due, our sins, entirely poured out. The word is called propitiation. The wrath of God propitiated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he punished, those sins punished in the sinless and perfect person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having no sins of his own, which would disqualify him. Having no sins of his own, which would make him an acceptable substitute. Second, First, by forgiving their sins. Second, by imputing to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ having satisfied the demands of God's law for a perfect obedience in their place and as their substitute, whereas um, among the ordinary sons of Adam, there is no one righteous. The second Adam then obeyed the law in every respect so that just as our sins were imputed or put to his account, his righteousness was then imputed or put to our account. As he was punished for our transgression, we are rewarded for his obedience and treated then as righteous. First, by forgiving our sin. Second, by imputing to us the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Such that in justification, our sins aren't merely swept under the rug. Right? Our sins aren't merely swept under the rug. They're not merely ignored for the sake, quote unquote, of love. They are justly and righteously discharged. Our sins justly and righteously dispensed with. Why? Because God is just, inviolably just, perfectly just, infinitely just, and eternally just. And his justice will never be compromised. B.B. Warfield said this, the saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in our union with him. John Murray, God cannot but accept into his favor those who are invested with the righteousness of his own son. Right? 
The Apostle John would later say, as he is, so am I in this world. (laughs) While his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, his good pleasure is also revealed from heaven upon the righteousness of his well-beloved and only begotten Son. Accepted as righteous and treated as righteous. It's a glorious thought, amen? Certainly you can see clearly that the basis of this magnificent work, this merciful work, this manifold work of justification is only to be found in the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, alone. So Paul rightly states then in Romans chapter eight, verse 30, our text this morning, Paul rightly states then whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. It is all a work of God. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, if you remember that text. Therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, present active, ongoing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our salvation is all of grace. In other words, our salvation is monergistic and not synergistic. Really important to understand. This is not a cooperative effort. Even in your sanctification, this is not a cooperative effort. The Lord uses the means of your effort, your striving, your diligence, uses the means of your effort to sanctify us, but you can be certain it is God who is at work in us, both the will and the do, according to his good pleasure. He is the one who sanctifies. This is not a cooperative effort. Our salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. The work of one versus a cooperative effort of more than one. And that is so that on on every ground of our salvation, start to finish, any reason for man's boasting may be removed and our salvation made sure. It is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. In infinite wisdom, infinite wisdom, God has devised a plan and purposed within himself to execute a plan that would deal with every aspect of our salvation, every aspect necessary to the deliverance of those whom he has determined before to love. That plan hinges on justly dealing with our sin such that he remains just in his dealings with us and the justifier of ungodly and undeserving sinners. And this is the justification, brothers and sisters, that is proclaimed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. God is at work, even now, through his gracious governing providence to bring about all that he has purposed. Why are you here this morning? (laughs) Why are you here this morning? God has purposed through his governing providence providence, to bring about all that he has decreed. Make your calling and election sure. Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge. Pursue making your calling and election sure. And where then, where then does all of that lead us? 
Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What is the end of them then? What is the aim of our justification? There's one more link Paul has added to the golden chain. That's our glorification. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have ever entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And we'll look at our glorification next week. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in our justification. It is all of grace, all of God, and it is certain. It is sure to the seed. And that certainty, that assurance should bolster your joy, your love, your worship, your service, your obedience, your hope. That should fuel and drive the Christian life to the praise of his glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for this blessed gift of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that having determined in eternity past to set your distinguishing love upon, distinguishing love upon us, that you decreed, foreordained, predestined that we should be conformed in, into the image of your son, and that in time, by your grace, through your governing providence, accomplishing all that you've decreed, you have effectually called us to yourself, giving us a new heart, taking out the heart of stone, replacing it with a heart of flesh, renewing our wills, renewing our minds, making us willing and able by your grace. You have called us to yourself such that we would turn from our sin to put our faith and trust in Christ, that through the means of that faith, which in and of itself is a gift of God, you yourself has de have declared us righteous, having forgiven us our sins, having imputed or crediting to us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, such that we now are declared righteous in your sight and treated accordingly. We praise you and thank you. And thank you, Lord, how you are even now fulfilling your purpose to conform us into the, the image of your son with the aim that in eternity we would be glorified, wed, as it were, to the bridegroom of the church for his everlasting praise and worship, for your everlasting glory, to the glory of your grace, uh, in the power of your spirit. And we praise you and thank you. If there's anyone here, Lord, who is is yet unconverted I pray Lord they would see the futility of their way the end of that way which leads to death and I pray that they would turn from death to eternal life in your son through faith again that you might be praised uh, as they worship in eternity as trophies of your grace we love you and we thank you for this in Jesus name Amen Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.